Last week here at Cross Connection Church, we started to get into the Old Testament book of Joshua. We've spent the last several years going through the book of Deuteronomy, and now we've finally come to the book of Joshua. And right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the beginning of Joshua, Moses, that great lawgiver and leader of Israel, he dies. 38 years prior to the death of Moses, the people of Israel, they stood at the border of blessing, right on the border of the promised land in the plains of a place called Kadesh Barnea. And it was there as they were gathered together just a couple of years after they came out of Egypt that Moses at that place, he directed that the elders of the 12 tribes of Israel, that they each would send an individual from their tribes to go into the land to spy it out. So 12 spies go into the promised land 38 years prior to Moses' death to go survey the land, to go look at the fortifications of the land, but not only to see the fortifications of the land, the enemies that they were going to face when they came into the promised land, but also to see the fruitfulness of the land. God had promised for generations that he was going to give them a land that flowed with milk and honey, a fruitful land. And so the 12 spies, they go into the promised land for 40 days to look at all the fortifications and to see the fruitfulness of the land. And then they return back to the children of Israel and they bring back to them this account, which we find in the book of Numbers, which we actually looked at a few weeks ago, but Numbers chapter 13, we read this. They returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. They showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell there in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then in verse 32, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it were men of great stature. We saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. When you follow the story from that report in Numbers chapter 13 through the rest of the book of Numbers and on into the book of Deuteronomy, you find that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for nearly four decades due to that evil report from those 10 spies and also because of the people's unbelief. So now 38 years later, the two faithful spies, because I said there were 12 spies, two of those spies were two guys named Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that came back from that excursion through the promised land for 40 days. They were the only two that came back with a good report saying, no, we need to have faith and boldly go into the land because it is our land. We need to go take it. So now those two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, they are the only members of that Exodus generation that remain. Everybody else is gone. And Israel is once again at the border of the promised land. God has exhorted them to be strong and courageous. He has promised that every single place that their feet tread on there in this land that he is giving to them, it is theirs. All they have to do is to go up into the land and take it. And Joshua has announced to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel that we are going into the land in just a few days. Joshua chapter one, verse 11, we looked at it last week. He says, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days, you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. 
So Joshua tells the heads of the tribes of the children of Israel, get ready because just a few days we are going into the promised land, something we have been preparing for for four decades, something that no doubt Joshua and Caleb, the two guys who had spied out the land before 38 years prior, they've been looking forward to this day. And now that day has finally come. And so he says, get ready, tell everybody in your household, everybody in your tribe, get ready because in three days we are going to cross into the promised land. But immediately after Joshua's announcement to that group of people, we move into chapter two, verse one, and we kind of find this curious situation that goes on in chapter two. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove or a place called Shittim to spy secretly saying, go view the land, especially Jericho, the city of Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and they lodged there. What we're going to see as we get into this text here in Joshua chapter 2 is that this passage of scripture is pretty straightforward and clear. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do a lot of deep searching in the text to get the gist of what is happening in this story. However, its placement and kind of what goes on here in this passage, it does, as you're reading through the storyline of the book of Joshua, it seems like kind of the story slows down for a moment and it's like, well, what exactly is going on here? Kind of this little parentheses here in this passage. The children of Israel are about to cross the Jordan to go over to possess the land that was promised to their ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Immediately prior to crossing into the land, similar to his predecessor, Moses, Joshua now sends some spies into the land. And remember, Joshua was a part of a group of spies who went into the land 38 years prior to go survey the land. And, you know, that didn't turn out quite the best. So now you kind of look at this and go like, okay, Joshua, what exactly are you doing that here you are getting ready to go into the promised land? You've already told the people within three days we're going into the promised land and now you're sending spies into the land. What, what's going on here in this passage? Again, this is a relatively simple and straightforward story. I mean, there's not a lot of deep investigation to figure out what's going on in this passage. But when you read it, I do think that what happens here in Joshua chapter two that we're gonna be looking at today, it starts to raise some important questions. First question, was this situation as Joshua is now preparing to send spies into the promised land before he leads the children of Israel into the promised land, was this kind of a lapse in Joshua's confidence and his faith in God. He's preparing to lead the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. He's already been told by God to be strong and of good courage for to this people, you are going to give the land. You're gonna divide the land to them as an inheritance. God has emphasized that message of strength and courage to Joshua. He, he in chapter one repeats it three times and actually a fourth time, if you consider the very last words of Joshua chapter one through the heads of the two and a half tribes, they also say to him, be strong and courageous. And now Joshua sends two spies into the land. So it is kind of a question, is Joshua lacking strength and courage and faith? I think that's a valid question. You know, God has already told him, be strong. You're gonna lead these people into the land. He's already told the people we're going in in three days and now he sends two spies into the land. So it's kind of a little bit of a question of like, okay, is he having a little bit of lacks, of, lacks uh, you know, is he lacking some confidence here? So that's the first kind of important question that I think comes up as you read this passage. Second question that comes up is something we see here in this passage where we read that these two spies, they went into the land and they came to the house of a harlot that's exactly what it says. And the text is very clear about this. Her name was Rahab. And it says they, they lodged there. 
Those words actually bring up another question. If you look at some of the commentary on this passage of scripture, did one or both of these two spies engage in some sort of immoral act with a Canaanite harlot in her household when they went on this mission? (laughs) That may seem like a strange question, but as you see, when you start to look at some of the commentary on this passage, it is an honest question because the word that is translated there in that passage that they lodged there is translated in other passages of scripture in a way that might imply that there was something more going on. Now, that's not to say that there is. We'll get to that in a moment. But that is a question. That's a question among people as they're looking at this. You know, why did they go to the house of a harlot? Why did they stay there? What, what exactly is going on in this passage? Third question that comes up, I think, when you're reading through this kind of parentheses in the narrative of the children of Israel coming into the promised land. I mean, Joshua's told them, we're going over in three days, so why not just get ready and go over in three days? Why this whole thing of sending in the spies? Was it right? This is one of the questions that comes out of this text that we're going to see today. Was it right or was it justified for this Canaanite woman in Jericho? Her name is Rahab. Was it right for her to hide the spies secretly and to lie to the authorities of the city about their whereabouts? We're going to see that the authorities of the city of Jericho came to her house and they asked her about these spies and she tells a lie. Now, I'm giving away some of the story at the moment, but I think that it's worthwhile to put the questions out on this passage before we get into the story. There is a fourth question that I'm not really going to get into today. We'll get into it in a few weeks when we talk about this city Jericho a little bit more. But Christians believe that the text of Joshua and all of the other Old Testament books are historically reliable. This passage here before us, it establishes the destruction and the conquest of a verifiable city named Jericho that existed in a specific time and a specific place. So the question that comes up, and actually it's been a question among Bible scholars and secular scholars, historians and archeologists for a very long time, is there actually historical archeological evidence to validate the account of what we see here in the book of Joshua? I mean, Joshua is giving us specific names of specific places at a specific time in history We should be able to verify that. And there are some questions among people. Is this verifiable or is this just fiction? Now, I believe, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we talk more about Jericho, that this is not fiction. This is history. So at the very least, there are some questions that come to mind when you look at this passage of scripture. There may be some other things to consider as well. But when looking at what appears to be a strange kind of parentheses in the narrative of Israel's conquest of Canaan, These are some of the important questions that people have wrestled with. So before I address these issues, I I do think that it is important to remember some things as we get into the text and as we're talking about Old Testament passages of Scripture. What we have before us here is not merely historical accounts. I believe that it is history. When we're reading about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness or crossing the Red Sea and coming to Mount Sinai and then crossing the Jordan River to come into the Promised Land and take possession of the Promised Land, These are historical accounts of Israel's move into what would be their national homeland and continues to be today. But it's also important for us to recognize as Christians that there's something more going on here than just a historical account. First and foremost, we need to remember that this account is ultimately a setup for God's much bigger, larger mission. The Bible reveals the creation of God. 
And then after the creation of God, it reveals the fall of humanity. Why do we live in a broken and fallen world? If God created everything, as the Bible says, very good, then why do we live in a broken, fallen world? Well, the Bible reveals the creation of God, that it was created very good, but then it also reveals the fall of humanity and the curse that comes upon all of creation as the effects of sin. And so we see the creation of God, we see the fall of humanity and the effects of the fall upon all of the earth. But then the Bible also reveals to us God's redemptive plan and his work. And ultimately what you see in the very end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is that there is a future restoration of all things that is prophesied and predicted. So as I have shared many times before here at Cross Connection Church, what this is called is typically called the meta-narrative of the Bible. And the meta-narrative of the Bible, it unfolds in four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration. God, as I said, he created all things and he said that they are very good. And then humanity brought a stain upon God's good creation through sin and through disobedience. The whole of the rest of God's work in the Bible since the fall that is revealed in Genesis chapter 3 has been around this redemption that God is bringing for a fallen creation, a fallen humanity. And in the end, God is going to ultimately bring about a great restoration. But God, as we see in the pages of scripture from the very first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible, he is seeking to bring about this redemptive plan and God ordains that this redemptive plan is going to happen through a people in a specific place. I've been talking about this quite a bit over the last several weeks here at Cross Connection Church. God has a redemptive plan for all peoples in all places, but he chose to use a people in a specific place to bring about this redemptive plan. Now, the people that God called are the descendants of Abraham and the place that God ordained to fulfill this redemptive plan through his people whom he called, the descendants of Abraham, is this promised land that now the descendants of Abraham are about to come into to possess. God has a plan for the redemption and restoration of all things. And that involves a specific people, the descendants of Abraham, in a specific place in the promised land. So I want you to keep that in mind as you study through and read through Old Testament books like the book of Joshua. There are incidental stories like the one that we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 2 that play into a much bigger story. God is doing something bigger. God's greater mission is the blessing of redemption for all nations. It is not just the redemption of the children of Israel from Egypt and a blessing upon the children of Israel in the promised land, but it is a redemption that is bigger than just the descendants of Abraham. In fact, in fact we're going to see a person today experience the redemptive power of God and God's blessing who is not a descendant of Abraham. So when we look at a story like this in Joshua chapter two, it plays into a much bigger story of God's greater mission of blessing and redemption for all people in all places at all time. Remember, God's call and promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was that I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, as an aside, as I say that this incidental story in Joshua chapter two plays into God's bigger story, the incidental stories or incidental happenings that happen in our life, kind of the parenthetical encounters that we go through, 
they just might play into the bigger story that God is seeking to work out in his redemptive plan. What I mean by that is that the things that you are experiencing right now in your life, God is using that in his redemptive plan. There are people in your life, through your life, that God wants to reach as we're gonna see in the story here. So that's kind of the first thing to keep in mind. The first thing to keep in mind is that this small story in Joshua chapter two is just a part of the much bigger and greater mission that God is seeking to do to bring redemption to all people in all places. That's the first thing. Second thing to keep in mind when studying a passage like this and others in the Old Testament is something that I've shared with you before, if you follow along with us here at Cross Connection Church, out of the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, writing about these people, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, he says, now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. What does that mean there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11? What it means is that everything that we read in the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible, God inspired that these things would be recorded, written down for a purpose, that they would speak to us today. He wants to teach something to us. He wants to guide and direct us. These are not merely written so that we would know what Israel's history was thousands of years ago. They, they aren't written just to record what life was like in the ancient Near East during the end of the Middle Bronze Age. These things were recorded so that we might learn of God's mission and his ways, so that we might know God, so that we might learn how God works, so that we might learn what he does. They are recorded so that we might be admonished, trained to know and walk in the ways of God. So Joshua, the son of Nun, here in this passage, we see that he is sending out two men to spy secretly. He, he doesn't do this super publicly. He gathers two individuals, two young guys to send them to spy secretly saying, go and view the land, especially Jericho. And so the text tells us, so they went out and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and they stayed there. Now, there have been those who have taught that this was a lapse in Joshua's courage and his faith. Remember those four questions that I said come to mind when you're reading a passage like this. The first question is, was this a lapse in Joshua's confidence, his faith in God, as he prepares to, to lead the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land? That's one of the questions that you'll find from some Bible teachers and commentators on this passage. Was he lacking courage, strength, and faith? I don't, I don't think that he was. It is interesting that Joshua sent two spies. Remember, he was one of two spies who were the faithful spies among the 12 spies. 38 years prior to this, there were 12 spies who went into land and only two of them were faithful. So I think it's interesting that Joshua chose to send two. He was well aware of what happened 40 years prior to this when the spies went into the land. The 12 spies in Numbers chapter 13, they went out with the knowledge of all of Israel. They, they went out publicly. Everybody knew that they were going into the land and they were there for 40 days surveying the whole land. This time, Joshua sends two spies and he sends them secretly to view specifically the region right there by where they are going to cross the Jordan to come into the land. He says, go look especially at the city of Jericho. Jericho, as we are going to see, is going to be the first of the cities that Israel is going to encounter, the first that they are going to conquer. And Joshua, he apparently wanted some advanced intel, some recon 
on both Jericho and also on the land around it. He's trying to get some good information about, you know, where they are about to go into. Now, the city of Jericho in that area was a prominent fortified city in ancient times. And there is archaeological evidence. I'll talk more about this in a few weeks. Archaeological evidence shows that Jericho, which is just about eight miles to the north of the Dead Sea, and it's actually very, very low. It's one of the lowest cities on the earth. It's at 900 feet below sea level. It has supported civilized life in that area going back nearly 600 years. The, the name Jericho, it, it speaks of a city of palm trees and it's an oasis in the desert down near the Dead Sea. There's actually a spring of water right there where the ruins of the city of Jericho are. And there have been people that have been living in that area right next to the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, living there civilization for 6,000 years. And it, it lies at kind of a strategic point in the ancient world. It, it lay at the north, south, and east-west crossroads. So if you were traveling from the, the, the Sea of Galilee and the northern part of what we know of as Jerusalem or Israel today, if you were traveling to Jerusalem from Galilee, you would come down the Jordan River Valley, and then you would go up into the mountains going to the west to go to Jerusalem. And the last stop that you would stop at after you just made that trek down the Jordan River Valley and started to go up into the mountains, the last place that you would stop to get provisions and water and all that sort of stuff would be the city of Jericho. It is just, as I said, eight miles north of the Dead Sea and about 15 miles west of Jerusalem. So this place had a lot of foot traffic, a lot of road traffic through Jericho. Why does Joshua send two spies there to this place? Again, was it proof that he lacked confidence or was it rather by God's direction and plan? Now, I believe as I've thought through this passage, not just this week, but many times before in the past, I believe what we see in the story is that Joshua sent the spies by God's sovereign direction and will. Even if Joshua wasn't even fully aware that it was God who was directing him to send the spies, I think it was God who sent the spies through Joshua into Jericho. Why? Well, the first reason is that there was a person in the place called Jericho that God wanted to redeem and rescue. And not only did he want to redeem and rescue this person in the city of Jericho, but ultimately he wanted to use that same person in a redemptive way. Keep in mind that God has a redemptive plan that involves a people and a place. And the redemptive plan is bigger than just Joshua chapter 2. God has a huge story of redemption that he is doing from Genesis to Revelation and throughout all human history. God is involved in this redemptive plan. So why does God inspire or direct Joshua to send two spies into Jericho? Because there was a person in that place whom God wanted to redeem and rescue and then to use them in a redemptive way. And I just want to say again at this point, recognize that God is still doing this. He still has ways of sending people into dark, difficult places to redeem and rescue people so that he might use those people in his redemptive plan. That's, that's your story as well. So one of the reasons that God directs Joshua to send the spies into Jericho is because he has a redemptive mission. God's sovereign direction apart maybe even from Joshua's foreknowledge, was that the spies were sent to rescue and redeem Rahab, a woman there in that city. So that's one of the reasons why I think God directed Joshua to send the spies there. The second thing that I believe God was doing is I believe that God directs Joshua to send the spies so that they, 
Joshua, the spies, and ultimately the people of Israel could hear the report from Rahab. So there's two reasons. One, the redemption and rescue of Rahab, and two, to hear the report of Rahab, which we're going to see in this passage. Joshua, as Israel's leader, he was exercising wisdom and prudence while also trusting in God's providence. So he's sending them in and he's doing the wise thing the leader should do to kind of get some advanced recon and intel. So he sends the spies in. The next issue that we are confronted with in this passage, though, goes back to that second question I brought up a little while ago. Did one or both of these two spies, and we don't even know their names, there are some assumptions about who these spies are, but did one or both of these two spies engage in some immoral act with this Canaanite harlot named Rahab when they went on their mission? What is all of this about? Well, again, as I said, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, notice that it says they went to the house of harlot, uh, the harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. And those words lodged there, they can and do in some places in the Old Testament imply a deeper meaning than just kind of lying down and staying somewhere. Uh, You can use your imagination about what that deeper meaning might be. But Rahab was called a harlot. And while there are some who have tried to say that the word translated harlot here in this passage should just be translated innkeeper, there really is no way to whitewash the reality that Rahab had maybe not the best background. Because we know that that's the case because the New Testament twice identifies Rahab as a harlot, as a prostitute in the books of Hebrews and in the book of James as well. So... Though it is also likely that her house was something like an inn for people passing through Jericho. And remember, a lot of people would have passed through Jericho because it was at the crossroads between the north-south and east-west routes through that region of the world. A lot of people would pass through Jericho and her house probably was an inn, but she didn't really have the best background. So the question does come up, and you'll find it in some Bible teaching and some commentary on passages like Joshua chapter 2, there will be questions about whether or not the spies engaged in something immoral. Now, I want to say, I don't think that that is the case. It does not appear to be the case. But in addition to that, what we will actually see is that this encounter between Rahab and these unnamed spies ultimately is going to end in the transformation of Rahab. She did not have the best background. She was a pagan sinner, a woman with a shameful background, but that will not be her end lot in life. There's something more going on here. Remember, God sent the spies to Jericho on a redemptive mission. They didn't know that, but that's why they were going there. So Rahab ultimately will be transformed through this because there's going to be a redemption and transformation of this pagan sinner to become a woman of great faith. In other words, the story around Rahab should inspire, really, our gratitude and praise. Because when all is said and done, we, just like this sinful woman Rahab, we are lost sinners facing imminent danger and destruction. Her city that she lived in was facing imminent danger and destruction from the punishing hand of God. And so we, like Rahab, facing imminent danger and destruction, we are in need of rescue and redemption. And God is the one who redeems. All that to say that some may accuse Joshua of a lapse of faith and they may question the morals of his spies. The reality was that God was at work here at this point in time. God's ways and works often seem strange to us. 
But remember, God is working on a whole nother level to fulfill his redemptive plan. The story in Joshua chapter two is just a very small bit of a much bigger story of what God is doing. And one greater than Joshua, the one whose Joshua's life points to, would come in the future to work the works of God and fulfill his redemptive plan. And he also would be associated with harlots and sinners and tax collectors. One of them would actually be a tax collector from this city called Jericho. And so that one who Joshua points to, who would associate with harlots and sinners and tax collectors, he was on a redemptive plan. And because he associated with people who were maybe not the best background, people maligned and mocked his character as well. God's ways and works are often strange to us. The way that he is working may seem a little weird to us, even to the point that sometimes we are tempted to reject what he is doing. But Joshua, the son of Nun, as we see here in this passage, he sent two men to spy secretly saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And so they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and they lodged there. I don't think that they did anything crazy or wrong or weird or immoral, but we read on in chapter two, verse two. And it was told to the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So there's a, you know, the terror alert is on red in that area there in Jericho. People are on edge because they know that the children of Israel are camping just about less than 10 miles away from them on the other side of the Jordan River. So the people are a little bit on edge about this whole situation. And so the king of Jericho, he hears that there's been some spies who came from the people of Israel into our land. And so the king of Jericho, verse three, sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then men pursued them, the two spies, by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Okay, I said there were four questions that come to mind when we read this passage. First one having to do with whether or not Joshua was having a lapse of faith by sending the spies into the land. The second one having to do with these two spies. Did they do something immoral when they went to the Canaanite harlot's house and stayed there and lodged there? The third question, is around this whole situation now with Rahab. And it's a challenging question here in this story. Was this woman Rahab, was she right? Was she justified when she lied about hiding the spies? She hides them secretly and then she lies about their whereabouts to the authorities. We have here really an ethical dilemma, a challenge. Because the commandment is very, very clear. The ninth commandment, you know, maybe you've read the 10 commandments before in Exodus chapter 20. The ninth of the 10 commandments says you shall not bear false witness. In other words, you shall not lie. Among the things that God detests and hates, a lying tongue is mentioned as one of the seven things that he hates in Proverbs chapter six. So Rahab bears false witness. She lies. There is really no way around it. So was Rahab justified in this lie? Is it ever okay to lie? What if any circumstances are there where a lie might be warranted? Now, in looking at this, Rahab's lie is kind of reminiscent of stories that we hear about Christians hiding Jews 
and lying to the Nazis about their whereabouts during the Holocaust of World War II. Uh, you can go and read the story about one great saint, one great woman that did that, Corrie ten Boom. And there were people during the Second World War who were hiding people and lying about it. So, so looking at what happens here, that, that's kind of the thing that comes up. And many a commentator has written on this situation. Many an ethicist has weighed in on what is going on here in this passage. Some would say that a lie is never justified. Others might counter that and say that a lie may be the lesser evil when it is intended to prevent a greater evil. So maybe it's okay when there is, you know, something really bad that's going to happen and to lie is the only way out of it. So, so there's different sides to this. Some people say you should never lie, and then there are other people who say, well, it was justified in this situ situation here. I think that we should say that a lie is always the breaking of a commandment of God. The ninth commandment says you shall not bear false witness. I don't think that you can lie and not bear false witness and not break the commandment of God. So we should at least say that a lie is always breaking God's commandment. And yet apparently... There seem to be some times where God permits it. And as hard as this may be for some of us to wrap our minds around, it seems from a passage like this that there is even a time where God may even account it as a righteous act. Now, you might at that point like really have a hard time with that and say, okay, pastor, how could this possibly be accounted as a righteous act? And the only thing I can do is quote to you from the New Testament where this woman, Rahab, is really spoken very well of for her righteous works. James chapter 2 in the New Testament says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? That's another story from Genesis chapter 22, which we'll look at someday. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by his works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Again, God's ways and works often seem strange to us. And what we see here in this passage is kind of strange to us because James chapter 2 says that what Rahab did was a righteous thing in the eyes of God, and yet she also broke the commandment. Now, as a rule, I think that we should endeavor to live our lives according to the commandments of God, uh, especially this commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And on the very rare occasion, as in the instance of Joshua chapter 2, apparently God permits it. But there is an ethical challenge here. You know, she did something that was against the commandment of God to rescue these individuals. So maybe it is the issue of a, a lesser issue or crime was going to stop a worse situation. But the dilemmas of this passage, they abound. Joshua sent spies secretly. Uh, was it a lapse in his confidence and his courage and his faith? That's a question that people have. The spies associated with a scandalous woman was it an immoral action by them interacting with her? 
Rahab lied to hide the spies. Was she wrong in doing this? One very well-known commentator, John Calvin, commenting on this, he says, when the object is to rescue one's life from injury, violence, or robbery, provided it be done without offense or harm to anyone, necessity excuses it. So in this situation, John Calvin says, well, maybe out of necessity, it's an excusable offense. I don't know if that's the absolute best way to look at this, but God has a way of working all things together for good, even when some of the things he works around for good weren't themselves good things. God is able to do some amazing things through our foolish actions. The one that comes to mind is at the end of the book of, of Genesis, when some of the sons of Jacob, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, when they sell one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery and he ends up as a slave in Egypt, ultimately in the end of the story, he says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. How is God able to do that? I don't always know how he does it, but God has an amazing way of using evil for good. His ways and his works can supplant and supersede ours. One of my favorite passages from the book of Isaiah is in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. God will accomplish his will and plan and can redeem in spite of our shortcomings. I mean, we see this constantly in our lives, that God is able to fulfill his will and his plan, and he still is able to redeem even when I fall short, and I fall short constantly, and so do you. Now, I said previously that I believe that Joshua sent the spies into Jericho by God's sovereign direction for two reasons. I said that first, I think he sent them in to redeem and rescue Rahab, and then second, for the spies and Joshua and all of Israel to hear Rahab's report. So then, look at what we find in the text of Joshua. Chapter 2, verse 8. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them, the two spies on the roof, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Do not miss what is going on here in this passage. 38 years prior to this point, when the two spies are in the city of Jericho with Rahab on her roof, listening to her say this stuff, 10 spies came back from spying out the land for 40 days with an evil report. They said, the enemies of the land, they are too great for us, and we do not have the power or the strength to go in. We will not be able to defeat them. That was the assessment of the faithless spies. But what was the perspective of the inhabitants of the land? This, this is amazing to me. When the spies went through the land in Numbers chapter 13, all they saw were the enemies and they were fearful of the enemies. But what was the perspective of the enemies? Here's one of those people. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on all of us that all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We heard about what happened when you crossed the Red Sea. We heard about what you guys did four decades ago, 40 years ago to the Egyptian army. We heard about what you have recently done to the Amorites. And as soon as we heard all of these things, our hearts totally melted within us. We lost our courage. We lost our strength. 
What does that mean? It means that 38 years prior to this, Israel should have gone into the land. They could have taken it. It was theirs for the taking. And when I read this, I wonder how many times am I or you, are we fearful to step into what God has for us because we are certain that we will fail? And all the while, God has given us everything that we need, sufficient resources of strength and power to be able to do what it is he's calling us to. God will never call you to do something that he does not empower you to do by his spirit. The people of Canaan were overcome by the power of God through the word of Israel's testimony. And that is still exactly the way it is today. In fact, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The word of the testimony of what God did through the children of Israel had spread throughout all the land of Canaan and the people were afraid. God's power to accomplish his will is far greater than we comprehend. Look at Rahab's confession of faith. The pagan harlot had greater faith than that Exodus generation. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The Lord, your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. Why did God direct Joshua to send the spies into Jericho? I think one of the reasons was that God wanted Joshua and the spies and all of Israel to hear Rahab's report. He has been saying, be strong and of good courage. You are going to go into the land in every place that the sole of your feet treads upon. It's yours. And now they're hearing the report from people who live in the land of Canaan who are saying, we've been scared to death of you for 40 years. So that's one of the reasons that God sent the spies, I think, into the land. But another reason is that God had a redemption planned for a believing sinner. Note this well, the heart of God is to save and rescue sinners. That is something we see throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so look at what we see in this redemptive story here. Joshua chapter two, verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, she says, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So she says, would you please save us? I know what you are going to do. You're going to come and you're going to destroy this city. But I'm asking you because I've shown you kindness that you would show kindness to my family and that you would save us. So the men answered her, the two spies, our lives for yours. I love that. If none of you tell this business of ours. So we're going to make a deal here. We promise that we will rescue you if you keep this a secret. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. This is important to the archeology span of this region as well. She dwelt on the wall and she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you hide there for three days. So the pursuers have gone to the east toward the Jordan river to look for them. And she says, go to the west and hide out there for a little while so they don't catch you. So lest the pursuers meet you hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be upon his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be upon our head. If 
a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you have made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it, or amen. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in her window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them along the way, but did not find them. And so the two men, the spies, returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. I said there were two reasons that God directed the spies to go there. Number one, the redemption of Rahab. Number two, to hear Rahab's report. They come back and they say to Joshua, Listen, this is everything that went on and the people, they are scared to death of us. They are freaked out and we now can go up with great confidence because God is going to give us the land. That's why he sent them in there to redeem Rahab and to bring back this report. God is in the redemption business. He had a much bigger redemptive plan in mind than just saving a sinful woman in Jericho. It wasn't only about this woman in Jericho named Rahab. There's something more going on here. This is an incidental story in the much larger grand narrative of God. When studying the stories of the Old Testament, always keep in mind that God is calling a people to a place to bring about a redemption, his redemptive plan and blessing for all peoples in all places at all time. And to show the greatness of this redemptive plan, his almighty power to accomplish it, he determined to even involve the sinful woman of Jericho in that plan. Because look at this. I think this is absolutely awesome. We think that, well, it's just about this woman and them coming and taking Jericho. No, no, no. There's something much bigger going on here. In the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew opens like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab and Aminadab begot Nashon and Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Come back for just a moment. There in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. This Rahab. This woman who did not have a great background. A scandalous, shameful past she ends up being in the line of the Messiah. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. God's power to accomplish his will is far greater than we can comprehend. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. This pagan woman with a sordid and shameful past was the first convert in the conquest of Canaan. And in the process of time, according to the will and the power of God, she, Rahab the harlot, became the great, great grandmother to Israel's great King David. And in more time than that, she ends up being in the line of the Messiah. So why send the spies into Jericho? Joshua didn't know the whole big picture. He may have done it for just kind of logistical recon issues. He may have done it to appease his own conscience as the leader. He may have done it because he felt that it was the best thing for him to do as a judicious leader. But he had no idea what God was doing. God had a much bigger plan in mind. He always does. Never underestimate the greatness and power 
of Almighty God. Never underestimate it. He has a huge redemptive plan he's doing. There's so much in this passage I, I want to get into. There's way too much that I just can't get into because I don't have enough time today to get into it. But this whole picture of them being safe, the family of Rahab, as long as they were in the household when judgment came, this is really important because it goes back to us being fully safe and secure in Christ when judgment comes. So much here in this passage is the scarlet cord very similar to the blood put on the doorpost and the Passover. When they come into the land, it's right at the time of Passover. There's so many things that I could go into. I don't have time to get into it. I hope you'll study it a little bit more on your own. We'll talk more about Jericho in a few weeks. But God, I pray that you would remind us that you are doing a work and you want to involve us in that redemptive plan and work. You redeem us like you redeemed Rahab so that we can give the report of your redemption to other people that they might be redeemed as well. So God, use us empower us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.